Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read briefly this morning from Genesis chapter 15. The story of Abraham in the midst of his earthly life serves as some background for what is being argued about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 6. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll pick up the argument in verse 13 there. But before we go to Hebrews 6.13, let's hear from Genesis 15, this story about Abram. Genesis 15, hear now the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one, indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass. When the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites. And the Jebusites. Amen. God has delivered to Abram a great promise with two parts. 
Abram, you will have innumerable descendants. Abram, those descendants will possess this land of Canaan. This is an extraordinary promise given that Abram at this point in the history has zero descendants and no land. So starting with nothing, God promises Abram essentially everything. And we are told this extraordinary response comes from Abram in verse 6. And Abram believed God. He believed that promise, having no proof of the promise, having no evidence of the promise, having no reason to believe the promise. He nevertheless believed it on the character of God alone. Because of who he is, I will believe what he says. That's it. But Abram, with such extraordinary faith, is nevertheless a mere mortal like us. And he wants assurance. He says in verse 7, or rather verse 8, How shall I know that I will inherit the land? What, what is the visible, tangible evidence? What is the proof? What, what can I see with my eyes that will confirm what I believe in my heart. Notice the faith is there. This isn't evidence or reason that creates faith. This is evidence or reason that confirms faith. And God gives him this extraordinary experience. An experience that Abram understands exactly what is happening, even if we don't. An experience that I'll explain to you in a few minutes. First, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Our sermon this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. The Holy Spirit has argued Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus, he has begun to argue, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. But to establish that point, the Holy Spirit pauses for a moment. And he applies the superiority of Christ... To our faith. And says because these things are true. We should have a peculiar faith. We should have a faith that grows. We should have a faith that endures. And today we should have a faith that waits. This morning let's think a little bit about our patience. As we wait for the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 20. Here again the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, 
which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen and amen. Twice now, the pastors of the Atlantic Presbytery have taken pontoons out on White Lake in New York. Both times, at least one pontoon ran out of fuel and left a group of pastors and their wives stranded in the middle of the lake. Don't worry, it's not a very big lake, so it's not terribly dangerous. But it's interesting to note that we've needed to be towed back to the dock. And as you sort through the different solutions, you quickly realize there's not a lot of options on the pontoon. And so you go to the front of the pontoon and there's this ratty old rope that is used to tie up the pontoon at the dock. It's the only thing you have. So you take up the ratty old rope and you throw it to the other pontoon that still has fuel. And they tie it off and they tow you back to the dock. I've been on both sides of that ratty rope. Pulling the dead pontoon and being the pilot of the dead pontoon. It is interesting to me that that rotten, ratty little piece of rope stands out for us as a beautiful illustration of the point the Holy Spirit wants us to get today. That Jesus is the guarantee of God's promise. That the one who secures eternal life in heaven for us is also the one who gets us into heaven through this earthly life. Friends, it is Jesus who not only fulfills the promise of God, it is Jesus who accomplishes and applies the promises of God. Jesus guarantees God's promises. So let us today learn to wait patiently, to endure patiently, Let us cling to hope. Beloved, Jesus guarantees God's promises. Let's cling to hope. Notice in the text with me today that we have three truths that emerge from Abraham's story. There are three facts, three reality, pieces of reality that we need to know in order to cling to Christ. In verses 13 and 14, we are told that God has made a promise to Abraham. A promise that He said, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. This strangely redundant word order in the New King James is in fact a close capture of what happened in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew has this strange idiom. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. It's emphatic. It's strong. When I bless the world, I'm going to bless you. When I multiply humanity, I'm going to multiply you. That central bullseye in which the blessing and the multiplication is most deeply aimed and most thoroughly concentrated is you, Abraham. You are the core of this promise, this blessing, this multiplication. But it's not Abraham as an individual who receives this promise. It's it's not about him as a man in a marriage wanting kids and grandkids. It's actually Abraham as a public person. 
It's, it's Abraham as a covenant head and figure. These two pieces, blessing and multiplication, actually come from Adam's message in Genesis 1, where God blessed Adam and told him to multiply, to be fruitful and to fill the earth. Adam, likewise, did not receive that command as an individual human in a private marriage. It wasn't Adam and Eve's responsibility to fill the earth with their kids. It was humanity collectively represented covenantally in Adam. So too, in Abraham's day, it was all who, like Abraham, believed the promise. Those who are descendants of Abraham by faith. Abraham receives the promise, and all who believe receive the promise with him. There is this covenant headship in Abram. What we need to recognize is that we are so prone in our individualistic age, to go to the promises of God and to seek to appropriate them to ourselves, privately and personally. Here's what happens. We go to a promise like, surely I will bless and multiply you. And we look at our lives and then go, I don't feel very blessed or multiplied. Well, it actually wasn't about you as an individual. It was about God's covenant people. It was about Abraham and all who believe. God has a purpose, says the text. That purpose is to bless and multiply His people, of which you are one, if you are in faith. But it's not directly and individually about you. It's about us. The primary application of this fact, God has a promise God has a purpose, and that promise and purpose is to bless and multiply His people, isn't that we should go out and go, all right, blessing and multiplication, here I come. But rather that we should seek to bless one another. How can I serve the covenant people of God? How can I be an instrument of grace by which God blesses and multiplies His people? Because he has said he will surely do it. It is not the self-seeking appropriation of blessing that God has promised. But the self-sacrificial service that God has called us to in this promise. God has said to Abraham, this is true. In all that I do, I will bless and multiply my people. You can live like that. You can bet on that. The second truth that he gives to Abraham is that he has to wait for the promise. In verse 15, it says that Abram patiently endured and then obtained the promise. This is a striking statement. If we simply go back and unfold the history that is behind this little sentence, we find that the promise comes to Abraham 25 years prior to the birth of Isaac. So on the one hand, the Holy Spirit here means that when God promises to bless and multiply His people, they might have to wait 25 years to see it start. This is what it means to wait. What is more, after Isaac is born, there's another 60 years before Esau and Jacob are born. 
That means that Abraham not only waited 25 years to get the first installment of the promise, Abraham then waited 85 years to get the second installment of the promise. To make matters worse, Abraham then died. Not having descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, nor as numerous as the sand in the sea. He had three. Abraham died with three descendants. This seems like a rather meager fulfillment of the promise, does it not? And yet, when it says in verse 15 that Abraham patiently endured and obtained the promise, the reason that is true is because in Exodus chapter 3, when God shows up to Moses in the burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham. Which Jesus interprets to mean that Abraham is still alive in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus tells the Sadducees in Matthew 22 that when Abraham died, the promise lived on, and so did Abraham. And though he passed into glory, he there patiently waited and obtained the promise. Have you ever considered that your life purpose doesn't end when you die? Indeed, you only begin to obtain it when you die. This is the point of believing in eternal life, isn't it? That this earthly life is not the sum total of who I am or of what happens to me. That there is eternal life and that the promise that I am waiting for, I will not see fully done and achieved in this life. I'll have it in the next one. Abraham patiently endured. Not just the 25 years when he waited for Isaac, though that is true. Not just the 85 years when he waited for grandkids, although that is true. But ultimately, Abram's patient endurance was his whole life long. For the fulfillment and the obtaining of the promise came when Abraham was living with God in glory. And this is what is true for you. Beloved, this is the truth. God promises to bless and multiply his people. From generation to generation, his people will prosper. But it may be that the fulfillment of that promise waits until you're in glory. It may be that we walk through seasons where that seems less evident in our lives. What do we do? We cling to Christ. Because there is a fulfillment of the promise yet coming. The third truth that Abraham illustrates for us is that God wants us certain of this promise. God wants us assured and confident. It says in verse 16, that when men swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is the end of the dispute. That is to say, if I cannot stack my reasons against yours and win, if I cannot stack my evidence against yours and win, what I ultimately have to stack is my personal preference for one person against another. If this seems obscure to you, check out social media. We go with the opinion of the person we like. And this is exactly what the scriptures here say, is we appeal to the greater, to the one whose authority we trust. But then in verse 17, we are told that there is no one greater, and so God must be the one who appeals to himself. In verse 17, we are told that God determined. It was his purpose. 
his plan to assure Abraham that the promise was true even though it didn't seem to be. Even though it only seemed to be in a small sample way. Three descendants in a cave in a field. Of all the land of Canaan, Abraham only had the cave of Machpelah in the field of Mamre, east of Mamre. He had one piece of field with a hole in the ground in which he could bury his dead. And he had three descendants. That's it. Of all the promise. But God wanted Abram sure. He wanted Abraham confident. And so he, in verse 17, confirmed it with an oath. And what an oath this is. You guys remember the story? I read it, what, 10 minutes ago? A little more than 10. Abram takes the animals. He splits them in half. And he lines them up in two rows, facing each other, opposite each other. So that the blood of each half of the carcass runs together in a pool between the animals. Abram knows exactly what's happening. It's called an ancient Near Eastern Covenant suzerain vassal treaty. God knows what's happening. We have lost this history. What Abram is about to expect is that he and God will side by side walk through the blood, get bloody feet, and so bind their covenant together. If you break your half of the deal, you'll end up like these animals. If I break my half of the deal, I'll end up like these animals. And just as Abram clears away the birds and gets ready to walk through the pieces with God, something extraordinary happens. Abram falls asleep. It's a deep sleep. It's the Hebrew word for trance. Abram is awake. He can see what is happening, but he can't move. He's like Adam in the garden who fell into a deep sleep so that a rib could be removed from him and a wife made. It's like Peter on the rooftop in Joppa who fell into a deep sleep so that the old covenant restrictions could be removed from him and a new covenant freedom could be given to him. So Abram is lying in the dirt next to the dead bodies. And he cannot walk between them. He cannot pledge himself to this covenant. He cannot fulfill the promises. God goes alone. And says blood must be shed. And it won't be yours Abram. It will be mine. This is the truth. God will bless and multiply his people. God will build his church. God will advance his kingdom. And he will crucify his son to do it. Jesus will walk down the streets of Jerusalem between the two halves of humanity. And he will carry on his back the cross... And he will form a puddle of blood at his feet. And he, the son of the living God, will secure forever the blessings of God for his people. These are the truths that Abraham illustrates for us. Truths we should believe. God will bless his people. And we have to wait. We have to be patient. We can't be in a hurry. We can't set the terms. We can't dictate the timeline. 
But we also have to realize He'll do it in His time and in His way. And His way is the Gospel. His way is the cross of Christ. So to these three truths, let us add three responses. There are three things we must do if these things are true. If God will indeed most certainly bless His people, and if He will take His time to do it, and if it will happen through the tearing of His Son in two, through His crucifixion on the cross, then indeed let us believe these things are sure. And let us first flee and lay hold of Christ. We should hold fast to hope, we are told in verse 18. Since these immutable things, these two, the promise and the oath, by which God cannot lie, we must believe it. Since God cannot die, we must believe in the resurrection. And since these things are true, we have a strong consolation. The Greek word here is encouragement. It is the empowerment to act. We have a strong consolation, an inducement to respond. These truths, these three facts, God will bless His people, He'll take His time, and He'll do it through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Since these three things are true, we have a strong comfort, a strong reason to respond, to do something. There's a strengthening of our arms, an engaging of our will, that we should flee for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This fleeing to refuge has the image of the Old Testament saint who is a manslaughterer. One who has blood on his hands. One who is guilty. And one who runs to the city of refuge. And there finds shelter and sanctuary. Friends, repent and run to Jesus. Get to the city of refuge. Get to the gospel of grace. And with those blood-stained, sin-stained hands, lay hold of the hope that is set before you. Grab the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grab the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lay hold of hope that is set before you. The hope that is offered in the Scriptures. The promises of God. Here are these promises. Here are these truths. Grab them. Find refuge in them. The second thing you have to do, as you flee from your earthly hopes, as you flee from your earthly ambition, as you flee from your selfish desires and flee to Jesus, the second thing you have to do is anchor that hope in heaven. Verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence of Behind the veil. There's this building of a metaphor. The Holy Spirit tells us, as it were, that we are to empty our hands of every earthly hope. We are to empty our hands of every selfish desire. And with empty hands, we are to go to Jesus and lay hold of hope. That hope in the mind of the Spirit here, seems to be something of a rope. And on one end, you are held fast. And on the other end is an anchor. Now, an anchor is not a common metaphor in the New Testament, but it's a familiar one to all who have seen any kind of boat or water. I went overnight fishing with a friend. 
and we dropped an anchor off the front end of the boat. Technically, we dropped a second anchor off the back end of the boat too, but that's neither here nor there. And when we woke up in the morning and we looked off the edge of the boat, guess what we saw on the land? The exact same land we had seen when we went to bed that night. Because when you drop an anchor, your boat doesn't move. I mean, it moves a little bit, but you get the point. The anchor holds you. This is the metaphor. That when we have a hope that is heavy on one end, not the end we're holding. And a rope of hope that is weighted on the far end and not cast into the depths of the sea, but into the heights of the heaven that goes on beyond the veil that is into the holy place, into the holy of holies. And there our hope is weighted and rested. And there our hope remains. We are not cast about in the storms of life. And we do not go under the waves of sin and sorrow and misery. We have a hope that makes us buoyant. This is a fascinating metaphor, isn't it? That an anchor that should go down into the water in order to hold a boat still, in this case, actually goes up into the heavens and holds a boat still and keeps us afloat and keeps us locked in. This metaphor is what's pointing us to the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We are told that in verse 20. That that hope that has gone before us is a forerunner even Jesus. He has run the race before us. He has broke the tape. He has won the race, but he's not waiting in the winner circle. He is standing there cheering us on. He is standing there pulling on the rope. He is standing there drawing us into the heavens through His precious promises. His word, His promises are like a rope tied around us, tugging us into glory so that He follows, so that we follow Him into heaven. He pulls us there through His priestly ministry, praying for us and caring for us. In the metaphor, we are told this. Lay hold of hope. And when you have it, throw it like an anchor into the heavens. And then feel Jesus tug as He pulls you up. That's the metaphor. That our imaginations can get it. That our hearts can be drawn to it. The theological reality is that Jesus has ascended up into heaven. And there He sits praying for you. And there He sits fulfilling every promise for you. And there He stands, waiting to welcome you, as He did Stephen in Acts chapter 8. You see, Jesus guarantees the promises. He is the one who pulls us into heaven. I had a friend who went climbing, rock climbing, when we were younger. He was a good rock climber. He knew all the calls, all the signs. He had another friend who was with him to be at the other end of the rope. They put on their harness They put on their carabiner, they put on their rope, they put on their helmets, they put on their chalk, 
put on their chalk bags, and he grabbed the rock, and he said, belaying. And the other guy, his friend, who had the rope, said, belay on. He pulled up the rock face and said, climbing. And his friend pulled on the rope and said, climb on. Halfway up the cliff, my friend slipped and fell, and to warn his friend below, shouted, falling. And his friend, being a snarky guy, pulled the rope and said, fall on. Beloved, this is the point of the gospel this morning. Jesus' promises hold you fast. Fall on. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your great reward. Genesis 15, 1. Do not be afraid, dear ones. Just believe. This is what Jesus tells the father of a deceased daughter. Do not be afraid. Just believe. Jesus fulfills the promise accomplishes the promise, and through His Spirit applies the promise. Jesus guarantees God's promises. Cling to hope. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this beautiful day. We thank You for this beautiful text. We thank You for the covenant You made with Abraham in which you made plain to him and all who would come after, that you are the God who will bless your people. You are the God who in his time and in his way, through the sacrifice of Christ, will establish blessing for us forever. And we give you thanks that through that same covenant, you call to us to respond in faith, to respond in hope, and to wait patiently for the fulfillment of the promise. Believing that the things we do not yet see, we are sure of. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us that assurance in Christ. That through the power of his spirit, through the reading and hearing and preaching of his promises, the scriptures and the spirit might agree within us and testify to us the promises are yea and amen in Christ. Father, awaken such hope in us. And give us a sturdy grip that we would hold fast to it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.